with Good Internet. It's the Harvester, Colin Atrophy, and I am here to welcome you to episode number 47, I think. I might have miscounted of Life Harvester Radio, my podcast where I talk to cool friends of mine and friends of friends of mine and people that I want to be friends with. And um, Aaron Yankee, the guest today, is I guess all three, right? Like we kind of know each other. We kind of are friends. I definitely want to be friends. Anyway, I'm rambling because I haven't had coffee yet because I feel... Like, I'm going to puke because being transgender is hard. Um, That's enough about me. On to the episode introduction, which is what I should have been doing this whole time. Aaron rules. Um, Aaron is an old punk from uh, Portland. I'm not from Portland, from Humboldt. You'll hear all that. Um, And I don't mean old like elderly. I mean old like just has been involved in the punk scene for a very long time. I think of her as um, an icon of cool ass productivity in so many realms fucking sick bands uh the podcast that she has been doing collaboratively with a bunch of other people in portland it did happen here which documents the um rise of neo-nazi street violence in portland in the 80s and 90s and the subsequent like diy anti-fascist punk approach to um getting them out of the streets it's fucking sick and i'm so lucky i got to talk to her and listen up from northern california i'm from northern california um it's i was born in grass valley and ended up back in which is like um gold gold rush country um and i went back for high school there my grandparents lived there at the time um but i did Prime, like growing up till junior high in Eureka, California, um, oh. known for pulp mills and beautiful redwood trees and, uh, you know, heroin and bikers and, and yeah. lots of drugs. And hippies? No. Um, my family was um, liberals. And they were, um, my dad was a probation officer and my mom was a, um, she was a counselor basically. So yeah, she, my, she ended up, she was a counselor around there. And then when we, they split up and then she ended up like being a counselor when I was in high school. No, after high school, she moved to Stockton and became a counselor inside a California Youth Authority High School. Whoa. So, yeah, they're very entrenched with the, uh, um, quote, justice, unquote, system um, in, a, in a way that's, like, been interesting to talk to them about yeah, my life. But. I can imagine you know, you grow up somewhere and then you have no idea later on until later on, you're like, that was intense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whoa. Okay. You know, so, um, yeah, but it's just, yeah, 
there's there's a lot to say there but yeah it's really intense it's really beautiful it's really uh it is really unlike any place that people who are not from california like would never conceive of that yeah um and what what were your interests as like a child like pre subculture like what's the first thing you feel like was like a sort of cultural thing that you were or like a music or a movie or something that you were like this is mine this is my thing that i love i'm drawn to it uh the library yeah yeah definitely cool. yeah that rules yeah. <laughs> um yeah it was it's you know again, this sounds really neglectful, but this was very common at the time of like, you know, when I was five years old, we got a bus, got public transit in Eureka. And so I was, you know, my mom, I think they took our whole like first grade class on the bus and taught us how to use the bus. And then, then it was like, cool, go ahead. You know, you're six years old, you ride the bus by yourself. So I could ride the bus downtown to uh, to the library on my own and I had a library card. I felt super grown up. Um, yeah, it was really great. God, that rules. Um, what'd you do there? Like you, were you like, just like looking at books? Were you wandering around? Did you, did they have a record section? I was just talking about the record section at my local library earlier this morning. We, not that I knew of. Yeah. Mostly it was books and, um, was like I could read pretty I read pretty fast so I would like read like the kids books there and then try to get some of the other books out you know like the the adult books were too much for me Mm -hmm. but the kids books were too fast so it was sort of like even in the library there's this awkward (laughs) spot you know of like what do you do for like smart you know, single digit children who, (laughs) you know, um, but I would mostly, I kind of stumbled into the like, uh, what's her name? Uh, the little house on the prairie zone, you know, like, okay. Long, you know, it's like, okay, there's, I don't even remember how many books are in the series, but it's like, you know, plenty to see. Yeah. 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 There's a lot to, there's a lot to get through. It's also like not unlike maybe like a future interest in uh, like just thoroughly getting records by a band or something. Like I feel like book series <laughs> like that really set the tone for me being like, oh, I need every edition of uh, this fucking Fear LP or whatever when I was 15. <laughs> the, <clears throat> the collector nerd starts on the fucking prairie. God damn yeah. it. um so how do you get introduced to how much of are you how aware are you of like your parents role in the prison system as a child totally super aware yeah okay Um, how how are they talking about it uh dinner table um my mom was counseling i this was like one of those uh you know uh i remember this moment very well my mom was counseling someone who had uh, been convicted of child sexual assault. And Mm. so he was like coming over for something, you know, or like they were doing the counseling in the house. So she's just like, here's his, here's what he has been convicted of. 
we are helping, you know, it's very much of a like reform, like we are reforming these people. No one is garbage. Everyone can change. But mm-hmm. if he ever talks to you or touches you, you have to let us know, you know, so very open. Fuck. That's he- could you could you grapple with that? Like, or grapple is not the word. Could you um, wrap your head around that when you were like, how old were you? Um, that seems like around seven ish. Um, Fuck. Yeah, I. I don't know. I mean, you're just sort of like, okay, you know, you're just sort of like, okay, I yeah. accept this, and sure. like, you know, it never, nothing ever happened with you know, with him or anybody at the house. So it's just like, okay, that was all right. We never had to deal with that. That's cool. Yeah. Excellent. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. Um, that also feels like it makes sense with like some of your future work. Um, <laughs> so how do you find subculture or counterculture or whatever in Eureka? Uh, um, cable television. Oh, we had we had Bay Area, we had um, San Francisco TV okay. because of cable and all of that. So um, my first inkling was it was like 1980 and I saw it was like Night Flight was on TV and I saw a video of Wendy o. Williams. So it's like, yeah, it's like mohawked you know, electrical tape on her nipples, riding an elephant. I can't remember in my head. It's like some gigantic animal like that. And you're like, what is that? You know, I've never seen anything like that. What is that? And then we, we were, um, my grandparents lived half the time in, in grass Valley, but also half the time in San Francisco. So we went to San Francisco a lot and their Mm -hmm. apartment was, uh, across from the Mint, which is by the Safeway on Castro and Market. Okay. So it was pretty easy to like be with them and walk around and like definitely see a freak scene. Yeah. So, um, so kind of after Wendell Williams was like, oh, now I have my eye out for it. Okay. And then as my parents split up and we moved to Salinas, California for a year. And so then that's like, I'm 14 and it's like, you can like, I have seen punks, but they're all super mean. Like when I try to talk to them, cause I have like very few social skills and you know, like just didn't know enough to like go up to the punk and say hi when you're like, you know, Right. Didn't work. So, um, but I could start being aware of it. And then mostly that was when I feel like that was when I started getting exposed to like, there was a, the radio and college radio. And there was a, it was like a commercial station in San Francisco that was like played X all the time and played like, you know, the gateway bands. Yeah. So then I could start like, you know, start getting more grounded in kind of the like new wave or weirder shit that was more commercially 
commercial, you know, palatable, and then kind of find the college radio that was like, oh, actual punk DJs and and actual punk music and actual punk, you know, philosophy. So it was kind of all morphed in that zone. And then, yeah, we moved to Nevada City when <laughs> um, Are you still for there? my three. No, no. Oh, I lost you on the phone. Um, I'm back. here. I'm back too. Uh, I'm here. Great. Yeah. Um, you were just talking about college radio um, and pu- actual punk DJs. And you said it was, it was all there. And then I lost you. Yeah, it was all there. Then we moved to Nevada City for, I, we lived there for three years for my first three years of high school. And they had a uh, community radio station that had um, a opportunity for people to like come down and play records. And then I like made some friends and was kind of friends with the guy whose dad owned the record store. So he was not a punk, but was, you know, knowledgeable about new music and things that were coming out. So um, that was really cool. And then there were shows in Nevada city in a way that I didn't know how to access shows in other places. And I made some friends. And so we, they all knew, or first, my first show was to see seven seconds in Sacramento in like 1985. And so it was like, oh, okay, I'm kind of like, I'm sort of figuring it out and hanging out with the skaters and like, you know, you know, met like my one friend from high school who's still my friend and, um, you know, figure, figuring out like how to be punk without a lot of examples. Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, when I went to, then I moved back to Humboldt to go to college and I feel like that was my real like, okay, I've I've like paid attention to college radio. I found maximum rock and roll. I like understand, I think, how things fit together. And now like I'm meeting people who also wanna be college DJ radio DJs who like have come from places with punk scenes. And so we're gonna like put on shows now and like, you know, invite bands to play and um and then, and like, there were older people and it just like, so I didn't, even for being around in the eighties and like being very strongly feeling philosophically like eighties punk, like I didn't really um, start getting to experience and be part of it until like the 89 uh, college kind of humble scene. Sure. Uh, and what are the local bands there, just for um, posterity's sake? Um, at the time, so yeah, I we hung out. Brent's TV hung out with, with, uh, with those were like my main friends, and yeah. Shark Fetish, um, <laughs> who Whoa. I am still, yeah, uh, <laughs> one of my oldest and dearest friends to this day. Still he lives in Portland. We hang out all the time. That was his, I think, his first band. Um, those are like the two main ones. And then like the, <clears throat> the Brent's TV people or Jane Maxwell band was there. They were like the all girl band. That was super cool. Um, oh, there's definitely other ones. Uh, Grimace was like the crossover 
uh, metal band that also <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, let's see. One man running was later, but was still um, was around. Yeah, it's actually um, there. Like what was great? Yeah, there was a God. Now I can't remember. That was oh, that's plenty. Yeah, um, there is also worry. that's where uh, um, the official uh, Pinhead Gunpowder started there. And when Aaron lived there for a couple months, there was oh, like shit. a just arcade version of Pinhead Gunpowder. Um, that was pretty awesome because pinhead gunpowder is this like pretty awesome strong green tea that they sold at the co-op in bulk yeah and now they like last time i went there like they had they had changed the label to be the the uh band font on the pinhead like in gun aaron's handwriting uh it wasn't the handwriting it was uh, just like the you know the print whatever one of the oh, records sure, was sure, sure. yeah but i was like oh my so. god that's so full circle this is great yeah yeah, I very love it. sweet. Um, yeah, that is very sweet. It's and what's the punk scene like back then? Because like I know I talked to like like I came. I'm 38 next month in a couple weeks, and um, so I came up in like the mid 90s, mid to late 90s in New York, and there was like this kind of like specter. There was like still Nazis that came to ABC No Rio or whatever, and like we would have to fight them, or other people that weren't me would have to fight them. Um, but then I, you know, as I got older and met older people, not just in New York, but like, like Mike Taylor, for instance, uh-huh. talking to him about going to shows in Tampa in the eighties and how he had to like, just fight a white power skinhead every time he wanted to see a band. Yeah. Like that was just part of the experience of being punk that back then. Yeah. Um, a, it situates that dumbass spoken word thing that, um, Jello Biafra does on that one Dead Kennedys record in a much different place for me than like how I understood it as a 13 year old or whatever. But B, like, I just can't imagine like the commitment you have to have to hang in an environment that that that's that violent is just so different than even when I was a kid. And there was still like, you really had to, there was no internet, like you couldn't learn about stuff. Like I still had to go in person and find out information, but like, it was not nearly you know, whatever fear I had of like having my masculinity police at a crown of thorns show was nothing compared to like that. There might be fucking Nazis with a hammer at every single time I want to see a band. Yeah. That was like, I, my experience with that was like kind of in the dropping in, in high school, like at that first seven second show, like that was my first experience with skinheads. And I had this, um, you know, you don't know what's going on. So you're like, oh, look, we can cut through here and get to the front in between songs. And then like, then like they start playing and then the pit starts up again. And you're like, fuck, I'm slightly trapped in the pit. So I turned around and this skinhead, they used to like um, regulate the pit. Like they would kind of stand on the edge and like keep the circle going or whatever. I don't really understand, but like, um, yeah, or, like, uh, they were just kind of create a barrier between, like, the pit and the crowd for some, like, some way. I don't, yeah, I can't really 
I do not know the philosophy behind that. Um, <laughs> but I was trying to get out. And so this one skinhead was like, you know, I'm like five, three or something. So he was, you know, six something. And so he's like, oh, you can't come out. You know, you're in there. So he grabbed me by the jaw and held me you know, straight arm to me and I am like swinging at him, but of course I can't reach him because I am smaller. And I remember thinking like, this looks hilarious to someone (laughs) (laughs) in the middle of this chaos. Like this looks, this is objectively funny. Like this is a cartoon come to life. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that big rooster and the little rooster in Looney Tunes. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) So um, so even when the violence is happening, like there is a way to like sort of, you know, like I didn't expect that to happen. And so, you know, part of my brain is just like, oh, look, I am noticing this bullshit. Okay. But in Arcata, it wasn't, it was so not like that. It was like, um, like the creeps were like the guy who thought he was a punk, but actually was an ex-cop and like just didn't like women you know and they really they fucked with like the riot girl people like they you know put in a change of address card and made all their p.o box mail go somewhere else and you know so it was more of a kind of like psychological fucking with these people than um then like you go to the show and there's like you know you're fine like everyone's dancing it's pretty chill. Like, you know, there's a wide swath of people that come, you know, like all the freaks come in cause it's a weird show with loud music. And, you know, we had, mm-hmm. when we were putting on shows, you know, we got to have like, you know, tragic Milano came up and that was incredible. And so that was a real freak scene, like people coming down from the head oh, and, you know, I think there was some like dead animal on stage and we we're like, what do we, well, I guess it's okay. You know, like we just, I just always felt like, you know, like very, not like a hick, like a redneck, but definitely like an inexperienced, like country person. Like a yokel. A yokel. Yes. I definitely always felt yeah. like a yokel compared to the Bay Area bands of the time. But then it was also like, oh, this is seeing them like less them because I'm not like a outwardly like they're very performative like they were incredible and I love them but it was like oh I can live if tragic mulatto can exist then I can be a freak like punk was very open as to what you could or couldn't be even in the you know people talk about hardcore kind of like making it narrow and I feel like for whatever reason like the the bay area music of the time like especially the san francisco music with like yeah tragic mulatto and the mud women and those people were deep freaks and it was just like oh, okay you know mdc deep freaks the dicks yeah. deep freaks you know so you're just like oh I don't know what everyone's talking about with all this like hardcore rigidity that you read about, but, or maybe that's later on that people would talk about it, but it just still felt really arty and free and cool. And like the reason of punk was to have possibility to just like do what you wanted, you know? Yeah. Um, 
yeah, that sounds beautiful. And that also is like a really nice counterpoint to the, some of the like more whack historicizations of that period that I've heard. Um, Yeah. And I think especially like, I mean, and because we knew Aaron, we would go to Gilman and kind you know, it's like the, I would see Blatz and Phyllis all the time and all that. And they were definitely, they felt like of that ilk more than mm-hmm. the way that it has been historicized now where it's like, you know, the, um, there were two bands, Operation Ivy and Green Day, you know, so, you know, like, Green Day was incredible, you know. I never actually got to see Up by V, but you know, you see the footage, it was amazing, you know. Like right. so, um, but yeah, it's just like there's always yeah, there's always more going on. And you can't, you know, as a documentarian person, it's just like it's hard to tell the full story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it takes I mean it's not minutes, possible. So. Yeah. Um, so tell the, yeah. But I yeah, I mean that's just I, I talked to, I think, years ago, I interviewed um, John and Megan Street Eaters about, for the show. And um, I remember John talking about growing up as, like, a kid in that scene where Blatz was the um, sort of primary band that, like, the, the universe of his social world centered around as an as a adolescent. Uh-huh. And, um, and he was, we were, like, sort of comparing the differences between the danger that we found appealing in punk where I, I was, I would go to these hardcore matinees of like truly shitty goon, like DMS bands. Um, because I, I found it thrilling to be in a place where I thought I might be found out as like not belonging and just absolutely brutalized by a bunch of knuckleheads (laughs) at any minute. Like I really was thrilled by that. Like I was doing a, uh, like a, um, spying, uh-huh. And he and he was like, oh, that's not what I meant by dangerous at all. What I meant was that, like, we were making a space together that was dangerous for those people. And it was, <laughs> it blew my mind that there was this other possibility, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, the danger really, could be a tool that you got yeah. to use instead of, yeah. oh, nice, beautiful. I love it so much. Um, so how do you end up in Portland? Um... So let's see, I'm, uh, live in Arcata, um, pretty Bay area focused, like in the like scene wise, you know, like going once a month or something and then graduated from college and, um, and sticking around, it's like, okay. And we had a, one of my good friends had moved to Olympia. And so we would go visit him and stop in Portland And then kind of more like, oh, we'd stay in Portland for a night instead of an afternoon. Okay, let's maybe let's stay in Portland for two days and Olympia for one, you know, so it just it just kind of um, kind of got on my radar radar more. And then when I was thinking about moving somewhere was like, well, I could move. I have to get out of Arcata. You know, it's a college town, and I'm done with college, and I'm over it. Um, and so it was like in San Francisco. I'm like, oh, I live in this house, and like I could, you know, volunteer here, and I would probably start a band with these people, and I could get a job at here, and blah blah blah. Or I could move to Portland, where I knew one person, 
and I had no idea what would happen. And wow. so I was like, well, that seems like the thing to do. And then, cause it's like, I sort of figured that I would always live in San Francisco. Like my grandparents live there. My great grandparents live there. Like my, you know, they, my family experienced the 1906 earthquake there. Like it's super deep San Francisco roots. So I just figured I would end up there. So I was like, well, let's go to Portland for a while and see what happens. And then, uh, then you just get entrenched somewhere and then the Bay area blows up into a weird tech bro zone. And so <laughs> there's no reason to go there. Um, and not saying that I will never go back there. I do have hopes for this, uh, the coronavirus uh, taking it back for the people a little more, but that also <laughs> could be uh, naivete from a thousand miles away and be like, yeah, fuck you guys. Ha <laughs> ha. Go back to your basements, wherever you're from. Yeah. It's my fucking city. It hasn't done anything to the rents in New York. Ah. If Is that's... it rents, I think, or, or someone said that the apartment rents are lowering in San Francisco. And there's definitely, like, parts of Portland where rents are getting lower. And then there's just, there's actually apartments to rent, too, which is mm -hmm. different. Oh, but, true. I guess even just the availability of an apartment is a different thing in, yeah. in the Bay. Yeah. Yeah, fuck. Um, so when was that? How long have you been in Portland now? That was 1994. So wow. it's been like, oh, four, 14. So yeah, 26, 27 years. Wow. I love that. That's longer than the youngest guest on this show has been alive. <laughs> um, which I just, I mean, we like spent a bunch of the time talking about how I was not, had no friends that were that young, but it's very, uh, it's really, I, I love the, like, um, the new access I have in my approaching forties to like true intergenerational friendship on both sides. Oh yeah. It's um, the best. It's such a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so what's your, what is the life that you make for yourself in this city where you only know one person and it could be anything? Um, well, uh, it turns out that, um, one, I did not know that, uh, this other person that I knew lived here. So she was in a, my friend, Doug, who was my one friend went, we went to a show and then this woman, Viva's band was playing. Viva had dated so a friend of mine who I had also dated in Eureka. So we sort of knew each other by having the same boyfriend um, at different times. And she, they, her band had this spoken word person do a performance, but then that woman had a room open in her house. So <laughs> it's like punk convoluted, but you're like, Oh, you go to the show and then you find a place to live in the punk house. So Right. Um, so I moved into, there was like the room and then the closet. So I just put a floor in this closet and paid $80 rent and got a job at a freaky vitamin store in downtown Portland that Dean Johnson worked at, who was the first drummer for Poison Idea. So we didn't become friends, but I was just like, oh my God, like it's yeah. a sign. This is perfect. Oh my God. I work with someone from Poison Idea. Yeah. Portland. It's mind blowing. It's it's a dream. Yeah. 
No, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, In a vitamin store. Not a poison idea job. No, not a poison idea job at all. Um, (laughs) Working with poison idea at the vitamin store while you live in a closet for $80 a month just feels like a real, um, like a classic 90s punk story, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, we had all the stereotypes too. Like, you know, there was like six people living in the house. And by the time I moved out, I think there were like 20 people you know, and like everyone just kept splitting their rooms up more and more. And, (laughs) you know, you're just like, I got to get out of here, but yeah, but it was great. You know, and that house was like, had shows all the time. And um, yeah, it was like big part of Portland had been like a pretty like spiky punk scene. And then from my understanding, like people moving in and it's like having these house shows to have people from other parts of the country come and play, like made it actually and plus and the x-ray cafe and other stuff happening, you know, but it was like, that was kind of an era where it became mm-hmm. like a pretty, um, you know, like a, a tour stop where it wasn't necessarily a tour stop before. Uh, it's, it's not a surprise that this is your background, but it's very unlike the life that I know of that you have in Portland today, where you work at the radio station. I, I, you are like a filmmaker I'm aware of that has been involved in like really radical work and like kind of, um, is it a stretch to say that you've been involved with like transformative or restorative justice work in Portland beyond Um, the documentary capacity? I would say, well, I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Like I've definitely like helped with, you know, been part of, of other things, but I wouldn't say like involved. Sure. Like I think so, so moving here, $80 rent, like not a lot of, um, you know, a lot of free time. So there, there is a community radio station here called KBU. Um, And so I started volunteering there and that's when I started like fooling around with, audio documentaries like I'd done a, a some thinking about it before and was pretty attracted to it but um my friend well you'll like this story my friend uh Sarah Sandberg I think you know her mm-hmm. um double ear zine I'm not sure but yeah, uh I know Sarah. yeah so Sarah was a finalist in the sassiest girl in America contest uh-huh. in 1994 and because of because we are punks and our unique situations, um, Sarah invited me to go as her chaperone, and everyone else took their moms, of course. So yeah, there's like uh, so. <laughs> yeah, just let that sink in for a minute. This is yeah. like I love this. <laughs> Um, it was really great. This is my second time in New York. Um, Josh and Anandi were upstate. So they came down and like stayed in our insane hotel room with us. Cause we're like, um, and you know, I got to go to Coney Island for the first time while Sarah was doing like a makeup photo shoot thing. And, um, but other than that, like we were, um, 
you know, the chef, I was the chaperone buying beer and then we just go back to the hotel room and freak out. And, um, but I was like, this is such a weird thing. So I brought my tape recorder and taped it. And so then this was sort of my first audio documentary was like trying to figure out, you know, how to do this and what, you know, figuring out the equipment and like, what's the interesting parts and what's not. And, um, so, so I think like, between that and like doing a radio show and doing all these other things, like um, being at KBU, which had a super radical outlook and was a, um, you know, crossroads for all of the different radical things happening in Portland. Like that's being around there and being a skilled media person who could actually do recording and do editing and all of that got me more involved into the local radical politics. So I feel like media work was like my main umbrella. And then I would do it for a lot of different kinds of people if they needed it or whatever. So that's, that's a little bit more um, how that happened. I think. Sure. Um, that makes Classy. a lot of sense. It's such a straight line, like from one point to the next, like you go from being interested in college radio to volunteering at the community radio station to, trying to create audio documentary, which like, how did you, like as someone who's been working on audio documentary for years, how did you feel when podcasts happened? Were you like fucking finally, like what, what was the. Yeah. I think fucking finally was about, um, that's the short version. Yeah. Cause you're just like, it's so good. Like, I mean, part of why I like doing radio is like, you know, I did zines um, for sure, but like, I don't really like writing very much. I don't think of myself as a writer. Sure. It's annoying, you know? So it's like, Oh, if I could just like, you know, so to have people speak in their own voice and like, you get to hear all the emotion in it and then you don't have to be like, and then they said, blah, 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 you know, like, right. and there's definitely, you know, I just wasn't, I just didn't want to work on it. You know, it's like, Oh, so, I just think I, you know, and I just adore Studs Turkle forever. And like, I just love the interviewing process. So for me, um, podcasts were just like, people finally take this shit seriously. Like I, now I can just be like, Oh yeah, I'm a podcaster and people know what it is instead of yeah. like, you know, people think you're like a, you know, a, a, just like a DJ and you're like, well, no, it's like the talking part of radio. And they're like, well, like a newscaster and you're like, no. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Yeah. I love it. Did you ever hear the, um, the greatest city in the world fanzine cassette fanzine? No. It's this guy Reed who's like worked in radio and, um, and video production stuff. Now I think he works for Rolling Stone currently. And he actually started uh, this podcast with me. He's like, he's the one that talked me into doing it. He had a show on FMU. Nice. Um, and wanted me to do segments but he um initially we were gunning to try to sell it to wnyc eventually can you imagine that we were <laughs> we were just so wrong about what we were capable of um or or what they were capable of accepting like yeah 90 of the early episodes of this show i intentionally made like edited in um like really meticulously eq'd chewing sounds because i i <laughs> 
<laughs> I had all the guests eat pizza with me and I would like make sure you could hear all the gross mouth noises because I thought that was punk. And it turns out it's actually just terrible to listen to. It is really awful to listen to, but yeah. Well that, yeah. So one of the other stops in there, I forgot about this, um, mm-hmm. was I was a intern at This American Life for a couple months, like three Ooh. months. So wow. that when was, was that? I think that was 2000 to 2001 that winter. Okay. Um, and again, this was like, uh, Paul and Sarah had missed the last winter by traveling in Australia and Southeast Asia. And so I was like, I'm going to make more money than I've ever made in my life, which is, um, you know, still not very much money, but you know, tons for us. And it was like, I'll pay the rent if you guys come live with me. And they did, which made it like, so great it was so awesome to have them there and like and then to just like be able to be grounded in who I was instead of trying to figure out like what they wanted from me which I think I would have done a little bit more had I not had like okay these are my like lifer friends you know we are a gang (laughs) even if like we've never experienced winter before, you know, or they had lived in Kansas a little bit, but you know, I just was like, okay. And then they like, because of them, it made it possible to like, you know, make other friends with the punks. And we knew Sarah would, but, um, and other, and some other people, but like, that's where I met Sissy who now I'm in a band with like years later. And yeah. So that was also just like really, um, for the punk part, really crucial to have them around, but also for the job part was like great to just talk through like, you know, they were like popular, but they weren't like nowhere near the hot shit that they would become, you know, it only been five years. So it was like, this seems cool. Is it cool? I don't know. That's not cool. Oh, okay. You know? So yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. It's real. I mean, I think it's really important to get a taste of like, like an actual taste of what you, what, what would seem like the, like the better choice if you didn't get to experience it. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I think I have a lot of very complicated thoughts, obviously, about putting out a book with Simon and Schuster five years ago mm-hmm. and like working in that, in that world of publishing and specifically in the way that I did it. But I, but and a lot of them are regrets. But none of those, I'm like, I don't, I'm not mad at how much they paid me, first of all. And second of all, um, it feels really good to be like, I don't have to worry that that, that that's like a, an unknown that I'm not measuring yeah. up to. I actually just know that this thing, it's a thing that I don't want. Yes. And it's cool. And I'm not judging people that want it, but it's not the thing. This is not my path. Yes. And that feels like a, a way that you can really crystallize what your path is, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what, that's what it did for me. Yeah. Um, it was, it's very interesting when you are around people like that, who um, just need to constantly create content, because again, this is like, you know, early internet, but definitely, you know, way pre podcast, but they're just like, they kind of just have to churn shit out, you know, so you're yeah. at a party and someone's talking to you and I'm like, Oh, Colin just mentioned this. Do I, 
ooh, that could fit into this show or this show, you know? And it was just like, fuck, you're never not working. And then your friends are just become like, you know, like um, just like more story factories or something, you know? So, um, so it was like, oh yeah. And then actually we had a story that we were like, this will be an amazing story. And they were like, oh, you should call the cops. And we we're like, uh, no, never. Yeah. You're out. You just. Bye. Okay, I'm going to shut my mouth now. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah um, it was. Don't, don't it say was what happened wild. Uh, on this podcast, because I don't want you to incriminate anybody or yourself. Um, oh, well, actually, it is. Uh, uh, it's a great story, and I will totally tell it. The very quick oh, version. Yeah. yeah, do it. Uh, I'd love to. Our friend Al was visiting and he is a urban canoeist. So he rented a canoe and Paul and Sarah and Al and I went canoeing in the Chicago river and we were dicking around and there was a bar that had a dock. So we're like, okay, let's make it to that bar. So we were going North on the Chicago river and a barge was coming. So we kind of like scooched over and the barge just, slammed into the Chicago Avenue bridge and we're like oh fuck okay so they're dicking around we're like everyone's fine and so we're like well actually let's just turn around and go home so in the the next day I'm taking the bus into work and the bridge is closed and so we finally go and have our meeting and they're like oh yeah the bridge is closed I'm like oh yeah a barge hit it and they're like oh how do you know that? And I was like, oh, we were canoeing. And then they were like, you were canoeing in the river? That's disgusting. And I was like, okay, that is not, we weren't swimming. We were just canoeing and swimming. It's whatever, you know, we, we are punks. We swim anywhere. So next day in the paper, my, um, they all called me at work because they're all hanging out and they're like, do you have the paper? Because we were, I was at WBZ at the time like we of course we do and so then they were like look at page 70 call us back so i find the paper i find the page and it was like lone canoeist responsible for the barge accident and the barge captain claimed that there was a lone canoeer canoeing up the middle of the river and who wouldn't move and that's why he had to run into the bridge because of this canoeer and that's when they were like, oh my god look at this and that's why like you should call the cops and say there's like yeah and it was like no there's i'm not gonna call the cops in any way who cares if there's four of us or one of us you know so turns out that the barge captain had ran into a bridge the week earlier and was just <laughs> drunk and he disappeared from the face of the earth quote unquote and was on like the top 10 maritime criminals list. <laughs> wow what a great so, end to a great story yeah and so like they found the guy my, they found our friend Al and he um, he said he was just by himself because he didn't want to get involved with the rest you know didn't want the rest of us to get involved and he got deposed by the DA because the 
Daly's wife was really interested in like non-motorized use of the Chicago River. So <laughs> somehow the company got fined like maybe $25,000 and um, Al made friends, of course, with the DA as like a sailor. So next time he was in Chicago, like the DA guy was going to take him sailing and uh, it all worked out just fine. But, you know, yeah. we were like, oh, if they're going to blame it on us. Yeah, we fucking took down your bridge. Yeah, fuck you. You know, just like the punks, like. Yeah, of attitude of that. So that was really fun at the time um, to, to just fuck around with that. But that's the, you know, like, I think that would have been an amazing story. But yeah. this American disagreed. So, oh, well. What are you going to do? Yeah. The um, fate to come back to Portland. Yeah. Then you go back to Portland. Yeah. I was just like, we were there for four months and it was like, this is great to, you know, have a extended stay somewhere else. But at the time it was like really hard to get vegetables in Chicago for me. And, you know, that was like one winter is cool because it's an adventure, but two winters is like, fuck this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and what is the, like, um, I forgot. Can you remind me the name of the film that you made? Arresting Power. Arresting Power. And that comes out in like 10 years ago, right? Something like uh, that? 2015. Oh, okay. Five years ago. Never mind. Yeah. We have a long way to get, to get there. But let's, <laughs> let's speed through it because I want to make we sure we it. get to. Yeah. Let's just Definitely. jump to that. Um, okay. Give me the, the capsule of, of uh, 2001 to 2015. What are you doing with your. Um, well, you're playing a bunch of bands. Let's talk playing about some a bunch bands of bands. Real quick. Um, yeah, I came, came back to Portland, um, got involved with this radio collective called Circle A Radio. Um, mm -hmm. so we were making like political one hour radio shows every two weeks. So between my This American Life, like chops and like the every two week deadline, that's when I really was like, this is, it was awesome. I've just like, here's the. Yeah here's the routine, here's the deadline, can't be too attached, like, you know, all that stuff. And then I think that that must have been, like, I came home and, um, let's see, Lydia and Katie had moved here from Georgia. And so eventually we were in a band called Social Graces, um, which was awesome. And then did you always play drums? You play drums, right? Yeah. Play drums. Always play drums. Cool. Yeah. Um, oh no. Things I hate. No, things I hate was very early. Okay. So coming back from Chicago. Oh, that's when uh chase and smashed was. So that was like Doug and Josh and uh, Jim and then Eric um, so those are all like people that I've known like forever since like, you know, Doug since like 1988, Josh since like 1990, Jim probably 91, you know, so like Jim I met cause he was a little rock guy, he came to Eureka, zine, we like traded zines, everybody ended up in Portland. So mm -hmm. we ended up in a band. We, um, Paul put out our record, um, 
It was cool. <laughs> um, and then that kind of faded. And then I think I was in social graces. I think that kind of overlapped a little. And social graces kind of faded. Like Lydia went to school. So we kind of dropped out and then we got back together. You know, we didn't really ever break up and we'd sure. still like meet every week. Um, so yeah. So then um from that i think all right we're in a band katie and i are in a band called noxima with marat who um was like a he grew up in portland and then went to england and was a barcelona squatter and like was in otan and those like some of those like uh, barcelona bands from like 10 years ago mm -hmm. and then sissy who was in bands in chicago and then was a coordinator for maximum for a minute and in yeah. the bay area um so yeah so it's been the four of us for god that's probably like maybe four five years hard to say long time dude that noxima seven inch that came out in 2019 i want to say i keep saying last year but it's not last year anymore um <laughs> it's impeccable fantastic Aww. music thank you it's like the funnest band and the best people and we still meet every week on zoom you know it's like okay these are my people you know we all love each other very much it's a yeah. really it's a great band to be in and uh, someday we will play music again and it will be wonderful yeah that rules um yeah so tell me about the film um julie perini uh is a experimental filmmaker and she has a really interesting story about being caught up with the FBI. Um, mm. And so she hates the police and won't talk to them. And so she moved to Portland and got involved with one of when the police shot and killed a young man named Keaton notice because he was wearing a hoodie and and they didn't like the way that he took a corner or something. So they pulled him over and then shot him like 30 times and he died. So, um, and I'm trying to go fast. I don't mean to be callous, but um, yeah. so Julie got involved with the like justice for key notice and made a know your rights film and was trying to figure out how to, um, just get the word out because people may have no memory before Michael Brown was killed that like, you know, black and brown people were being killed by the police all the time. And it might like take a hold for a minute in a city, but it's not the fact that we've been talking about police brutality every day, basically for five years is a world that I just never thought that I would live in, which is yeah. very cool. I'm very pro for it. So but thinking that this world wouldn't exist, we're like, okay, let's, let's, Julie is like, let's make a movie. And then because she had lived in town for about a uh, couple years, couple, four years at the time, maybe. Um, so she reached out to myself and our friend Jody. Jody was in the Circle A Radio Collective with me. So we'd been making media since like, yeah, 2000 together. 2003 mm -hmm. something so um and we had when you know when the police killed people we would like do a radio show about it we'd have interviews we would know the activists and the family if the family wanted to be known right so we've had all these relationships 
to then bring to Julie's movie. So the three of us worked on it together. So it was a very um, super collaborative project. Like we would, you know, hook up the projector to the computer and we would edit it, you know, someone would drive and the rest of us would be like, move this here, do this here, you know? And so with doing interviews, like, I don't, I don't know how to film edit, but I've been doing interviews forever and I have an editing brain. So I can be like, just right. move this here, move this here. And um, when you're talking about it, I'm actually I have a young friend who's 23 and she knows how to film edit, but she doesn't have the brain yet, like to be able to see it mm -hmm. very quickly. So we're doing a, a editing trade starting next month where I get to um, be like, move this here. And then she teaches me how to actually do it. So for cross-cultural friendships, I love it. Like Skillshare. Yeah. It's cool. It's a fantastic um, thing. Yeah. So we worked on this movie, um, Julie, probably for like three years as like the thing that we did. And then when we were finishing it, it came out in January of 2015 and Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson in August of 14. So we were mm -hmm. like, this totally changes like the idea of us putting out a film and people being like, well, why would you care? Isn't it just one bad apple? So that was like a really amazing kind of wave to hit. And it felt like a once in a lifetime thing until it happened again <laughs> with this podcast. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to think about releasing a movie into that time. And yeah, I've made short movies since then. There's one that I made about the, um, the trees that Jimmy planted by the freeway. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, that's like, it was an audio thing. And then people did like shadow puppets to it. Whoa. So it's like actually really beautiful, but so yeah, I'm like a, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a filmmaker, but I'm a, I, I'm a media dabbler. Yeah. But I will send you a link to that. Cause you will. Yeah. You'll love it. Yeah. I want to see that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about it did happen here. The podcast okay. you're currently working on. Yeah. Um, do you want to give like a brief, just for listeners who haven't heard heard it or heard of it yet, a brief summary of what it is about? Sure. Um, it did happen here is the story of what happened in Portland after the 1988 murder of an Ethiopian immigrant named Mulageta Sarah, who was murdered by three East Side White Pride Nazi skinheads. Um, so in the Portland had been like a known like skinhead skin city, like definitely known problematic place. Um, and then in the wake of this, um, as opposed to in other places where like there's a horrific hate crime and the knowledge of it goes up in Portland, also the amount of hate crimes went up because mm -hmm. like, now people were emboldened to like act on their worst impulses. Um, yeah. But that was pretty rare at the time. Like people, normally people would like rise up and have a not in our town moment and things would, you know, get back to normal, quote unquote. So um, in Portland, there was the 
Um, so kind of three different groups of people came together. And one was a group called the Coalition for Human Dignity, which there is like almost nothing documented about this group of people. Um, and they were the people who I kept waiting for, like in our modern times for like the Antifa is like fighting the Proud Boys. I kept waiting for um, people to come and defend Antifa not being part of the subculture, but as being part of the city of being like, this is our city and these people are fighting racists and you don't have to like how they're doing it necessarily. And you might be intimidated by their outfits, but they are our children and we are on their side, which was the coalition for human dignity was like college kids mostly. And then went to organizing with more community members. And then the other groups of people they were working with was the punks who, you know, and, other subcultural people who formed mm -hmm. the anti-racist action, which was a kind of a new model in the States at the time, which then we tell the origin stories of that, starting with the Minneapolis Baldies kind of starting the like, well, we're going to fight the Nazis. We go where they go. They formed, you know, they had their group in Minneapolis. They formed a regional group and then, um, they went national yeah. with anti-racist action. So Portland was a pretty strong anti-racist action chapter. And then the Sharps, the skinheads against racial prejudice, who ARA was too organized for, and they're basically um, kids who like had a history of abuse or, you know, runaways and they run, you know, they all raise themselves and very like tribal, gang like you're with mm -hmm. us you're against us kind of their own rules um like you wouldn't really being a young person with uh sharps in my memory of being like a teenager and it was like you didn't like them and you didn't trust them but they fought nazis so it's like they didn't make me feel safe as like a human or a woman but they made me feel safe yeah as a totally punk. I mean, you know what so i mean i'm like by 1997 say when i start going to punk stuff or like participating in actual punk beyond like a no effects record or my dad's ramones and dead kennedy's lps <laughs> it's like um ARA was huge and I, I knew I knew of it as like i thought it had existed forever at that point i thought it existed as long as punk you know um, and Sharps were just like part of the social fabric uh -huh. and Sharps, my understanding of Sharps as like a sort of baby um, gay anarcho-punk was that they are good because they fight Nazis, but also they're like bad for all the other reasons many skinheads are bad, which is that they're homophobic and they're sexist and they're this and they're that. Blah, blah, blah. And that was like sort of the conception in my head in the suburbs of New York City in the late 90s. Um yeah. And yeah. And, and I always loved ARA because my parents were real big Southern Poverty Law Center people. And it just felt like a version of their liberal shit that I actually believed in. I don't know how to express how much I love this podcast that you are part of um, for a billion reasons. And I mean, one, I think it's like it's really urgent that people learn this history right now. Right. Like, I think that this history is is one that we made accessible to more people and 
Um, but besides that, besides like that, it's important, which I think is like, if that's the best thing about a, uh, a cultural um, object, it's, uh -huh. it's kind of an insult. Um, because like, you call something important to, to not have to talk about that it's poorly made. Um, right. <laughs> this, this is, I've never, I've never heard any piece, any podcast that is this well produced that has politics like mine. Like, usually there's like a cool podcast about the fucking Israeli occupation of Gaza and it sounds like shit or like, you know, whatever it is. Um, but you guys are making a very profesh podcast. You have a, um, the like story building that you do in terms of like creating a narrative arc around these historic um, moments is magnificent and it sounds great. And all that, you know, in sort of in conjunction with also being the, one of the most radical things I've ever heard um, that wasn't made by m m me, you know, or like someone I interact with every day um, right. in this kind of context, it's really, it's really fantastic. And I'm just, I am blown away and I want to just um, kiss your ass for a second and say like, yeah, fuck. Wow. Good job. Well, thank you. And also like, it's a, we, we laugh about it, you know, cause it's like, there's, there's like six of us who work on it. And then there's like a couple other folks that like, you know, Marat helps with the website and Julie does the visuals. So it's just like all the people who've come up in other places in this interview, you know, but like, um, but everyone is great. Um, Mike Crenshaw is like a rad, radical hip hop dude who was a founding member of the Baldies. Mm -hmm. Having someone who was like, you know, there for all of it and for, yeah. you know, so being like, as a black skinhead, this is the problematic stuff, you know? Um, and then Selena is also fantastic and she's younger. She's like in her thirties. So she wasn't there for any of it. Right. So she always has great questions of like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> what does this mean? And then, so, um, and then, you know, I, I can get nerdy in a different place for anyone that's interested. Um, but then the narration is great because the first round of people who look at it are Mo Bowstern and Icky, who are both like great, you know, great zine people, long-term friends um, who Icky grew up in Portland. Yeah. And then Mo also was like punk adjacent, but has no idea. So it's like a great combination of like, you know, people who were there and people who don't know working together to answer all the questions. And it's just, yeah, it's a dream team. Yeah. It's, and it's, it, it's incredible what you, what you're doing. And, and there's so many things about it that I think I touch on a lot of this in the review that I wrote, but um, that I think are done so superbly. But one of the, one thing that is the, the most interesting to me, I think is that um, conversations that I have had around the utility of violence or the necessity of violence as a, um, as one of many tactics in that is integral to a like holistic fight against fascism um, 
have largely only had two pretty distinct sides where one side is um, like kind of liberal hand wringing. They go low, we go high, complete bullshit that is not grounded in any kind of reality. And then Uh the other side is this like um, insurrectionary anarchist, like romanticization of street fighting by people that aren't actually doing it. Uh Um, And the people that I, most people that I know that like uh, participate in the kind of brutal violence that, you know, drove the skinheads out of New York when I was a kid, for instance, are not talking about these things in these terms. And so um, to have a conversation occurring that is unquestioning about the fact that um, fighting and violence are necessary and were necessary to to change the conditions of the city of Portland, but that the conversation is occurring between interviewers and subjects who were present and are also reflecting on the trauma um, Mm -hmm. of having experienced and participated in that violence and have like the hindsight to say like, yes, what we did was necessary, but like, fuck, it was hard and it hurt. And it's, it's, um, I think it's a, it's the, one of the only nuanced pictures of, uh, this kind of, um, like, um, anti-fascist gang activity that I've ever heard. Yeah. Totally. It's been like, it's such an honor to like get to hear these people talk. I wish you had heard the new episode because it's like, um, it's just all about that of just like, you know, if I, you know, people who, you know, this guy, John, like, you know, killed a Nazi. And it's just like, if I could go back in time, I would, you know, like I wouldn't have a gun. So I wouldn't have that choice, but like, you know, but I also like I did this thing and it's like, you know, it's part of who I am. It's part of my life experience. And and it's really gnarly. It's like the things yeah. that we do, like, especially for. Yeah, it's so easy to romanticize the violence, but it's like it's a you know, there's a there is a price to pay for anything that we do. Like the price to pay for hand wringing is that like nothing changes and you know, you get to hand wring some more, you know, so then you get really good at hand wringing, but it's, yeah, it's just like, let's the having Mike do the interviews and then having me do the interviews here and like knowing Mike and then having these people just really trust us with their stories, like having Mike do it. It's just like, these people are just so just open because he was with them. He's one of them. And it's just incredible, like, you know, the love and relationships are just really apparent there. And so when I got to do the interviews, they were just like, okay, you know, we trust Mike, so we trust you, but don't fuck it up. And it was so great to have that episode come out and then just be like, that was great. You totally didn't misrepresent me at all. And, you know, like, and this is important to like, as people are being pushed into like feeling more of that dichotomy, it's just like there, everything that we make into a binary is just fucked up. And, you know, we're like, we're moving away from it in these other places, but we need to move away from it with violence too. We need to move away from it and everything. Yeah. So 
um, yeah, it's been, yeah, it's really been cool to experience that with these people and then have it, have the public actually like get it. It's like, oh, people are really listening and hearing that. It's really great. What's the response been like from like non-punks or like, you know, like not me, you know, someone who has known about the area <laughs> for most of my life, you know, like what's this, this civilian world think about? They, um, I'm not sure. Cause the okay. only, um, like the activists, like Mo's really in touch with young activists and they really love it. And sure. then the people like the older people that we interviewed are like, this is incredible, but we haven't really gotten too many like civilians. So, sure. um, so I don't really know, but everyone who is, and of course it's like the nature to get in touch if you really like something but not the nature to get in touch if you don't. And the one place we've had some pushback was like with the sharps and like you romanticize them, but like this, you know, I was raped by one when I was 13 and I had to move away from this and this. And so there is some of that coming up in a later episode of like, you know, people who have trauma create trauma because that's what they're familiar with, you know? So I don't know if we will get to address it in a way that, um, I mean, what you can't make everyone happy, you know, but I do want to, we're trying to like flesh that out a little bit more and kind of the ending ones, we're wrapping it up. Yeah. So that's about it. But pretty much everybody else is like very, um, very supportive and, and like, and the punks and the Generation X people who were around are really just like, we've we've never heard like anything we've been involved in be told like correctly. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So it's it's been cool. This is Noxima, Last Gasp. I'll put the Bandcamp link in the episode description. I'll put the other links in the episode description. Erin fucking rules. Check out literally everything she does. That's it. I don't want to throw up on the mic. Fuck ice. Free Palestine. No cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. I'm out.